Hi, this is Ivarian X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. We also have the support of lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high-quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative software and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their seven-day free trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the candid frame. I have an affinity for any documentary that focuses on photographers and photography. I watched them all. And when I heard about this new film, Through a Lens Darkly, Black Photographers and the Emergence of a People, I knew that I wanted to sit down with its director, Thomas Allen Harris. The film explores the history of African Americans in photography from both a historical and a personal point of view, touching on ideas and concepts that are as true today as they were 100 years ago. We began our conversation by talking about the role of photography in the director's own life. In terms of my family, um, my grandfather was a f- photographer. Um, he was a not professional photographer, but he took pictures of his family and of his community. He moved to New York from uh, New York City, actually Harlem in the in the 20s from Albany, New York. And he started taking pictures then. And I uh, took pictures of his parents and, and his, his life in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. And then um, as his family grew, he got married and, and both in terms of the nuclear family with his wife and his daughters, he took pictures of uh, documenting them, but also he took uh, photographs of his larger community. And that community was principally shaped around his church, which was the uh, Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Harlem. It's a mother Beth- the Mother Bethel Church at 132nd Street uh, in, in Harlem off of Lenox Avenue. And he was also the treasurer of the church for, the, for 50 years. <laughs> And so this was this, his his hobby was photography. It was a way in which he kind of interfaced with the family and kind of constructed his family and his community. And I uh, I grew up for the first two or three years of my life with my grandparents principally. And um, I made a film, um, one of my earlier films, uh, Amy Nyakara, That's My Face, which was shot in Brazil and also in, um, in, uh, in the United States and East Africa. I realized in doing the research for that film how much um, my grandfather had photographed me from you know, the time I was uh, um, a few weeks old or maybe days old. But he was also a patron of the arts, and he um, he so he would go, go to Vangerzi Studio, the legendary photographer James Vangerzi. He went to James Vangerzi's studio for his um, wedding portraits with my great grandmother Joella Johnson. My grandfather's name was Albert Sidney Johnson Jr. 
And then later on, he went to Austin Hansen's studio for their 25th anniversary and for the image, for, for photographs of his daughters before his oldest daughter uh, left the family, went to get married. And so, the, so every male member of our family actually was uh, encouraged to take uh, use the camera. And in some ways, I guess it was kind of a, kind of a welcoming into you know a kind of a for my family. I guess it may be a, more of a, a manhood or masculine space to be able to construct oneself and one's image and take fa- pictures of the family. And so he gave me and my brother our first cameras um, before we turned uh, before adolescence even. And my his his brother and all of his uh, most many of his uh, son or at least one son-in-law was took was a photographer, amateur photographer, and then and so that was with my grandfather. And then the generation after that, my my mother's uh, second husband, my stepdad, who is from South Africa, he was part of the African National Congress, and he was a um, a freedom fighter. Left uh, South Africa in 1960, and with 11 other young men, to spread the anti-apartheid word and establish ANC missions across the world. And, and he, out of most of the other men who he left with, uh, ended up using the camera as his weapon of choice. And so he documented both while he was in South Africa and on the journey from South Africa to Tanzania, which was a grueling four or five month journey. Um, and it was also that he and that journey and his relationship with South Africa and the men he left with was a subject of uh, one of my earlier films, um, actually my last feature film, uh, 12 Disciples of Nelson Mandela, A Son's Tribute to Unsung Heroes. And so I grew up with you know, an activist, freedom fighter, you know, African diasporic subject, citizen, who uh, was also an archivist and librarian and was one of the founding members of the anti-apartheid radio at the United Nations. Uh, grew up with him in the house, really uh, encouraging the family to take pictures and this larger African diaspora community to document itself uh, through all of its the waiting and the fighting and the uh, around the anti-apartheid movement. This is going back to um, he joined our family around seventy-two or so, and so it's going back to uh, you know eight years before you know the um, free Nelson Mandela campaign, which made Nelson Mandela a household name in nineteen eighty. And uh, it continued, and you know both he and my grandfather also shot on Super Eight, in addition to still uh, photography and also video and audio. And my grandfather actually shot thousands of color slides in the fifties, and 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 Lee shot a bunch of color slides, but he shot, I guess, more in the sixties, seventies. He actually did a lot of color slides in the sixties, and then started doing more kind of thirty-five millimeter print film in the seventies on, and then. Um, I took up the camera. I studied uh, photography at Harvard um, in addition to uh, being pre-med. You know, I t- took two photography courses my senior year, and uh, that stuck with me. <laughs> I'm still waiting to see how all the science I, I took, uh, I, <laughs> all the science classes I took, uh, I uh, used them in my life. Um, maybe the discipline of you know, studying science and the rigor has allowed me to be persistent in my filmmaking uh, career. Because uh, 
it did take 10, 10 years to, to finish this film through a lens darkly, black photographers and the emergence of the people. And so I had to have a, an amazing amount of tenacity to do that. There are times I think it wasn't, I didn't know if it was going to actually happen, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually uh, digressing. I did want to talk about one other member of my family who was very prominent in terms of photography, and that's my brother, Lyle Ashton Harris, who is a well-known uh, photo-based artist and does performance and a variety of uh, multimedia. And um, so he, um, and, you know, his photographs in the New York Times and, and uh, his photographs have been widely published and exhibited. So we have three, and, you know, and our relationship has been um, very close and very, uh, there's been a lot of exchange of information and support in our various uh, trajectories. And when he, my brother was at CalArts, um, he was constantly sending me articles. And you know, I was at that time had started working. Um, I was working as a photographer, doing a lot of stuff for um, institutions like the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. I have a lot of their early archives in the, in the, in the oh, not so much early archives, but in the 80s, when um, he started doing a lot of public, ex- public uh, projects that were led by uh, Alice Hazlip, I was doing a lot of that documentation in addition to some um, fashion, some you know, kind of fine art stuff. Uh, and, but I ended up getting a job in public television as a producer and turned my energies more towards film, even though I kept taking pictures. I would more exhibit as a, as a, as a film and, and a TV producer and filmmaker. And, but at the same time, my brother was actually, you know, when he was getting his MFA, I was also kind of, uh, you know, tagging along, so to speak. And, and uh, there was this intellectual exchange and also introducing one another to, you know, people, you know, I, I had, you know, the New York people and my brother had the West Coast people. And so there was this kind of exchange photographically and art in terms of art and uh, cultural theory. So it's, yeah, basically three generations of, um, this kind of uh, photography that was also kind of a family photography uh, camera as a tool for social change with regards to my uh, stepfather, Benjamin Poulet Lenine, and then my brother uh, as an artist. And we actually collaborated on a photo, a major photo project for the Corcoran Gallery of Art uh, that was, in, uh, was installed at the Corcoran Gallery of Art in 1998 called uh, Alchemy. It was a film and photographic installation. And he's also a subject of the film, as is uh, my grandfather. So tell us about, you know, how this film came came to be. I mentioned the book earlier, and then, and you've uh, acknowledged that that, that book was a, an inspiration for you. But, you know, what propelled you to invest as much time as you did to put together a film? Because that's that's no easy feat. Yeah, well, you know, I had known Deborah Willis. Um, I was introduced to her by Alice Hazlip at the Schomburg in 1986, right after I moved back to the United States from Europe, living in Europe, and for two years. And she is just amazing. I mean, this woman talked about a community builder, and I resonated with her. And she actually put me in my first show in the United States, uh, my uh, my first photographs in a show, and she actually pu- published some my first photograph. And her book about African-American photography from 1940 to the present, to 1988. And then she also put me and Lyle, the work, the alchemy, images from the alchemy in her book, Reflections in Black. So 
she and I have been very good friends. Uh, she's been a supporter, uh, a mentor. You know, we've supported one another. And she approached me after I finished um, the a- That's My Face, Amy Nyakata, That's My Face, the film I shot, mm-hmm. and finished in 2001. It was actually a film that was shot all in Super 8 by three members of my family. Me going to Brazil looking for a face I had in a dream. My uh, grandfather on Super 8 documenting the family. Uh, as they move from being colored and Negro to embracing a Pan-African aesthetic. And my my stepdad photographing us when we lived in East Africa on Super 8. So it was actually three spiritual journeys on Super 8 uh, that has a narrative woven through it. And Deb had seen that. So she, she, I guess she was interested in kind of this take I had on the family album on connecting a kind of a personal journey with a larger a larger journey, a larger ideas around a diasporic community. And I remember her coming and seeing the film um, when I showed it in New York, and she was so supportive. And then I, a few months later, I, I, I told her the other day, I had a dream that, you know, about making a film about photography, and then you came and approached me about this. And so, so she approached me about it. And at that time, I, yeah, I don't know why I didn't tell her then. But anyway, so I said, you know, she wanted to make a, a, a filmic interpretation of her book, Reflections in Black. And so we set about beginning to do that. You know, we applied for several grants and we got some development. And the book is an encyclopedic, amazing, groundbreaking book of the history of African-American photography. And so the challenge was to turn that into a film. And what does that mean? And so we struggled with that for a number of years. And I realized that I had to, number one, um, that it couldn't just be a, a, a film about the book that, you know, that could be inspired by the book, but it have to go, you know, beyond to this other space of these images that were circulating contemporaneously with the images that the photographers in her book were taking so that you have a sense of a kind of a, con- a context you know, and a lot of those images were really harsh images. You know, there were images uh, that were created and disseminated to the marketplace that would be that would uh, you know really support this the popular notion that African Americans were either less than human, you know, because photography started before the end of slavery, twenty years plus, or you know after slavery uh, to support the idea that African Americans were not you know fit to vote, you know, to be citizens, you know, and to support the terror that was being enacted and the disenfranchisement that was being enacted upon them. And they were, you know, basically images that were, um, you know, on the one hand, there were, you know, these images that were kind of like precursors to television slapstick. But the, you know, the butt of the joke was African-Americans, you know, who were depicted as being savages or being ignorant, unable to learn, who were being depicted as uh, one of the people that were particularly, or a group, a group that was particularly and savagely attacked were the middle class, black middle class, and you know who were depicted as you know fancy dress dressing, but when you you know but you looked inside their homes and you know you didn't have you, there was nothing in the house or there were chickens running around you know it's like you know so that they were kind of like so kind of like a real attack on these you know this group of people who were trying to affirm their own sense of identity and sense of citizenship and to, to kind of take them down a peg you know in the eyes of of, of uh, mainstream or white Americans or you know internationally so the film actually it really became this kind of like war of images between African American photographers and 
the proliferation of these other images that, you know, really are sourced from slavery and disenfranchisement and oppression. And so that's the film actually kind of follows the evolution going from the beginning of uh, photography and early black photographers, many of whom were abolitionists, you know, and the ways in which different people, including other white abolitionists, used photography um, and also the people who wanted to prove that African-Americans should, should continue to be slaves and shouldn't, you know, there was no reason why they shouldn't. And all the way, you know, each decade it kind of shifts. But, but at the same time, the film has this nonlinear aspect. You know, uh, so many of the contemporary, contemporary artists working in photography and, and photographers were responsible for unearthing a lot of these early black photographers. You know, they were a lot of contemporary African-American photographers especially of a certain generation uh, like Chester Higgins or Anthony Barboza, Ming Smith, you know, uh, Deb Willis. They were mentored by some of these early black photographers, whether you're talking about, you know, Paige Polk, uh, Tuskegee, or you're talking about Van Der Zee, you know, even someone who, you know, someone like Gordon Parks who mentored a tremendous amount of uh, photographers or Roy DeCarava, who himself had been mentored by um, James Latimer Allen, a Harlem Renaissance photographer, who was a contemporary of James Van Der Zee, but never received you know, as much recognition. Uh, and, and his career wasn't as long. He ended up working, I think, going to work in the public service, moving, leaving Harlem during, right after the Renaissance or there you know, soon after. And um, his, his, his archive was, was thrown out after his death by his wife. So a lot of the black photographers, you know, and, and African American scholars working in photography unearthed, but particularly the black photographers and artists unearthed these archives and pushed them forward, you know, with the Black Photographers Annual, the publishing of that amazing those three three or four years of publishing of the Black Photographers Annual. And then there's also contemporary photo-based artists who use performance in their work, who also um, go back. And in the constructed images and comment on history or reinterpret history for themselves. And so I was really interested in moving between the present and the past because um, it just seems like, you know, it, for us, it has not been a linear kind of movement. I mean, there is a certain linearity, but there's also this nonlinearity, this place where we're constantly kind of moving back in time or being sucked back in time, you know, very much like, let's say, like um, Kindred by Octavia Butler, you know, where someone has to keep, go back to somehow shape the, the present. And for me, history is about, you know, how we interpret the past to make sense of the present. So it's, con it's a dynamic thing. It's not, it's not something that is static. And I really wanted to ha have not, not only the film be a meditation on imagery and representation, but on the very idea of, you know, then, now, and, you know, and in the time yet to come. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. If you've created a website yourself or hired someone to do it for you, you know how difficult it can be to make significant changes to the layout and design. It can take hours, if not days, to do. That's not the case with Squarespace, which is constantly updating and adding new features that you can adopt within minutes. Their new feature summary blocks allow you to create magazine-style layouts so that users can scan and view your content. 
You'll see it in action on every blog entry for the Candid Frame that I post, making it easy to browse content from several weeks ago. Find out for yourself by taking advantage of their 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and go for it. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. One of the things that's kind of interesting about your <clears throat> about your film is that it, it covers the role of photography in, in the African-American community from a variety of different perspectives. There's, there are ones uh, where photography was used, uh, as it is with for most people, as a documentation of personal lives, you know, children growing up and important family events, which inevitably, you know, leads to those images being becoming important social documents of a time and a, and a place. And then there are other uh, people who use photography as a form of activism. You mentioned in the film uh, Sojourner Truth, who used photography. She was a former slave and then became a, an abolitionist. And she was a, a woman who used the photograph to actually create an identity for herself that was not defined by by other people, neither by you know, the, uh, her fellow abolitionist or, or, or by people who were for uh, slavery. And I thought that was a first fascinating aspect. And can you talk about, you know, the, how those two extremes and everything sort of in between in terms of what choices you had to make in order to be able to put it within the, you know, the, the two hours that you had for, for the film, because you could easily have done a much longer film, on these individual topics, but, but as a filmmaker, you have to sort of condense things, but that's an important part of the story. You know, initially we tried to raise funds to do a series. The film went through all kinds of incarnations, <laughs> you know, a series or two, a, ser- a four-part series, a two-part series. You know, it was really tough getting support, financial support for this film, you know, and ultimately I realized, you know, I mean, it, and, you know, we, it, we, it ended up being more of a, you know, we're thinking of it more as a transmedia project. So, you know, we're going to be releasing modules and the film will have a much larger kind of reach and might still also have this, you know, kind of a series as well. Cause we shot, you know, we shot 52 people for the film, but we'll see, but in terms of this film, you know, I was very much interested in a sense of uh, kind of a uh, a ninety minute, ninety minute, ninety two minute film, you know, for theatrical release, and and that was that that I felt like well, we could at least if we do that, then other things will come out of that, and you know, I really wanted to have this kind of condensed journey so that people can really see and experience this as one kind of con- concise thing in in the context of an audience that's something i really wanted you know and initially i didn't know if it was going to be in in theaters although i really wanted it to be i knew it was definitely going to be in, in festivals but to link all these different things these different ideas you know it was really important for me to actually step into the center of the film um which was something that you know was difficult initially to do i didn't have as much support around that as um as you know as perhaps i i needed it towards the beginning of the editing process but ultimately uh to 
of my major funders or, or major funding entities and supporters, the Ford Foundation, Orlando Bagwell, who is then the head of Just Films, the funding entity at Ford, the Ford Foundation, which supports social issue documentary and film, and also the Sundance Documentary Fund. And also a few other friends and editors you know, came to me and said, no, you have to really be in the film. You have to talk about what is at risk for you as a filmmaker, for Thomas Allen Harris as a subject in the film. You know, what is at risk for you? Why is it so important to talk about this issue of representation right now for you? Of course, this is way before, you know, the, what you, you know, Ferguson and, the, you know, the If They Gun Me Down campaign and, you know, the kill, recent spate of killings of, you know, African-Americans by police, although it seems like it's never ending. And so I, you know, I, I decided then to really put myself fully in the film. And for me, that meant not just talking about the risk, but also the dimensions of who I am. You know, as both a, a scholar, I taught at the University of California for eight years. I had a position there for eight years. I taught there uh, for six years, but I had the position for eight years and in the art department at UCSD. Yeah, I'm also a published poet. And so I really wanted to ha- bring that voice to bear and, and to think about these different ideas and to present them in a way, you know, for particularly for, you know, my, my audience, so the, the ideal audience for me in my head, the people I was speaking to when I was making this film were like young people, that next generation or two generations underneath me, you know, who consume things via images, you know. Immediately you mentioned the event, you know, out comes a smartphone or tablet and let's see what it looked like, you know, or what the re- or representation. And so, and I didn't want to really talk. Yeah, I wanted to kind of like have, I was thinking about these different ideas, these different people, these different storytellers, testimonials in a way that was like very much about music and like a kind of orchestra, you know, where thing, you know, where you'd have this kind of song that would be going and then these people would pop out, these entities or you know, sections would pop out and talk about something specific that would add light on the next thing or, and also what, comment on the past. The, the thing you just seen, but also take the ball forward and throw it to the next one. And, you know, at the same time, you have this kind of running narrative of African-Americans and who we are in this country and, and the complexity around this issue of representation, how important it is and, and how all these different people use it in these different ways and, and the d- different dimensions of it. And then personally, you know, what was at risk also or the challenge, you know, in terms of my particular family coming from one side of the family that was, you know, so invested in this issue of representation and image making and another side of the family in which there was this absence, you know, absence of the camera, absence of knowledge of of the history of the family, absence of the father, absence of images of the father and images taken by the father. So to have, you know, the, the paradox of to have so much wealth and to, at the same time to have this intense, this lack, this hole. There's a, you've mentioned several relatively, relatively well-known photographers. You, you know, Gordon Parks, Roy Carava, uh, Anthony Barbosa, um, uh, Smith. yeah, um, but you interview you interview <laughs> several several photographers in there who are less well known, and what did you discover about them collectively that you might not have even been been aware of yourself as a result of interviewing them and, and making the film? 
I would say with the exception of maybe three, two or three people, I had known these photographers, photographers I had known because you know, I'm in that world, you know, mm-hmm. even if I'm not a central figure in that world or, you know, that I don't make photography the centrality of my practice, you know, as an artist. But, you know, I knew these different people, you know, like John Pinderhughes, you know, well-known photographer who actually took pictures of my cousin Peggy, you know, so he's in the book. You know, I mean, a lot of these people are also in Deb's book, you know, so I, you know, either I knew them directly or I knew them through their work or I knew them through um, the Kamongi um, workshop who had these sh- different shows, the collective, or um, I knew them through their books that they published. What did I find? The interconnectedness amongst the African-American photographers, both in terms of laterally but also generationally, has been amazing. And just the breadth of the work, the commitment. You know, for me, there's a tremendous amount of pain, you know, that I feel, you know, seeing the work of these amazing photographers and the fact that they're not as you know well known as they, you know, as they should be. You know, for me, I I see them all as like you know hugely significant figures. Every single one of that's in the film. You know, in different different ways. You know, and you know, and they all have their own fo- you know following that's you know national and international. But it was really important to like, you know, bring them together, you know, as a, as a kind of family. And, and in some ways, you know, that's, that's kind of what I did with all my other films. And that's also the ethos of Deb Willis, you know, um, in, being inspired by, you know, by her sense of ideas around family. And, you know, these people, we're operating, you know, I mean, a certain generation, you know, did not get, you know, the museums were closed and galleries were closed for them. You know, in the 70s, 80s, you know, so even in the 90s, you know, certain generations, the galleries are open to them, you know, like Lorna Simpson, you know, Carrie Mae Weems and whatnot. And then the subsequent you know, generation and Lyle Ashton Harris, you know, my brother, the subsequent generations of, you know, Hank Willis Thomas, you know, people who are emerging, who, you know, who actually has emerged, but are the, um, you know, contemporary photographers, Sheila Prebright, you know, who are just um, doing amazing work building off of work that's come before, you know, both within, you know, Af- the realm of African-American photography, but the larger realm of art, art history and photography in general. I had an uh, interesting, if not a little disturbing conversation with a major gallery owner here in Los Angeles. I was at, uh, at, at an opening and he was telling me that he was, you know, looking for work within the African-American community of by African Americans rather than people from outside of it, but he did. He said he said one thing, and he basically said that he wasn't looking for for work that that was. I guess I can't remember exactly the words, but the gist of what I got was he didn't want work that was just about being self affirming, and that really struck me because I felt like he, he seemed to be saying he didn't want work that had that agenda. And I could only assume that it was because he didn't accept the premise of the idea that work by African Americans or for any underrepresented uh, group that that alone is not work that is um, is you know I, I, I'm not sure what the word is for it, but it was mm. it, it just it just struck me that that mm. that he he had a real clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
understanding what he didn't want. And I think that not all of our, our work by, by Latinos, by African-Americans, I think our work has to reflect that in one degree or another, uh, whether you're, you're addressing it directly or whether it's just there on the periphery and the idea that, you know, that this gallery owner and many other gallery owners probably close the door to work that they feel conveys that. And so I'm kind of curious as to, from your perspective, since you had the opportunity to talk to so many photographers and you're in that world, um, what's, your, what's your take on that, that comment? Well, I think it has to do with a certain narrowness of that gallery owner, you know, but also of uh, photography community and arts community in general. I mean, it's it's very, you know, the narrowness of it. I, you know, I, and also, you know, that 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 Afri- their work that uh, you know affirms African Americans or any particular community is not is not can, can't be universal because it certainly can't be universal. I mean, you know, I th- my my work absolutely is affirming you know but at the same time it's also critically engaged and questioning you know but i find i find that to be true of a lot of all the artists who are featured in the film you know you know some some can express it more easily you know verbally others you know more in their images you know the images it's 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 expressed in the body of their work yeah it's it's you know it's it's curious i mean i think that I mean, we haven't reconciled the degree to which, you know, as a country, we're ignorant, you know, of, you know, just, just ignorant, you know, just plain and simply ignorant. I mean, you know, when I, my, you know, myself included, you know, I mean, before I came to this subject, I, I mean, I knew certain things about African-American photography and stuff, but, you know, you have to really dig. It's not in the history books. It's not, you know, there, you know, there, there are certain communities where you have certain knowledge, it's it's beyond. We, we should be way beyond the facts. We're, you know, the film that I, I made is really is talking about the space of the psyche, the space of you know ta- dealing with issues around you know who we are, you know, as spirits, you know, as um, you know the, the the finite with this. You know, what what do we do with this finite time that we have here? And how do we under, begin to understand, you know, some of these philosophical kinds of issues in the context also of being in a society that, that sees us, you know, as, as the problem that, you know, that, that or the victim or, you know, or this kind of like, you know, this branding that's happened around, you know, people of color, you know, in, 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 in this country and the, the constant denial of our input historically in, in the making of this country, you know, before the making of this country, <laughs> you know, just, uh, and the, the complexity around, you know, and the artificiality and the constructiveness around race and, you know, identity and around whiteness, you know, the interrogating the, the, all those things, you know, 10 years, you know, I've been steeped in this stuff and, and, um, and, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, I put this out there for, you know, to, you know, as a quick download, you know, and to pass the baton off to, you know, to, to the next generation, you know, to pick it up and, you know, or engage in it in, in the way in which they need to. With Apple's recent announcement that they are no longer going to improve on Aperture, their photo editing application, there are thousands of photographers wondering what they're going to do. 
For those who are interested in transitioning to Lightroom, the hurdle of how to move over not only individual images, but also collections, ratings, and groups, and more seems daunting. Well, lynda.com now offers a course on how to do just that in their latest video. It's the kind of content that they are renowned for. Videos and courses that help photographers do what they do best. You can experience this for yourself and watch over 2,000 quality videos for free for a limited time. I've worked on a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for free for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to use it for a week. That's L Y N D A.com forward slash the candid frame to start your seven day free trial and help support the show. With the ubiquity of, of camera phones and with everyone being a, a, a photographer, do you see that as being an effective tool to countering sort of the, the negative, negative representations of people of color that kind of persists? Or do you feel like that to really combat it, there has to be a more sort of in, informed, more exact approach to the creation and the distribution of photographs in order to really sort of counter everything that happens, uh, you know, with, with mass media? Yeah, I think that, you know, because we haven't grappled with some of these images that, that are operating on the, the psychic level, you know, especially the stereotype and the pro proliferation of um, these, this, this, uh, this, this war, you know, representationally. But until we've grappled with that, then, you know, it's just a drop in the bucket, you know, until we grapple with it nationally. And I think that, you know, then we're going to be at this place where we're constantly having, you know, different visions. You know, it's like the mainstream vision versus the, um, you know, the dominant vision of and versus the, um, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about, you know, being seeing oneself from within or inside and seeing, you know, seeing uh, and seeing oneself from the perspective of, you know, this kind of... Um, construction. I mean, not to say that the inside isn't the construction, but the construction on the inside, you know, tends to be, you know, son, daughter, you know, <laughs> you know, a certain connectedness, you know, uh, mother, mother, uh, sister, brother, you know, father, brother, uncle, all that stuff, you know, connectedness. And one of the characters in the film, Chester Higgins talks about, you know, being fed on a diet of this other stuff these other images, you know, it's like, you know, it's, you know, it's not only whites who are fed in a diet or, you know, uh, mainstream rather. And, but it's also African-Americans, you know, ourselves, you know, our, our kids, you know, how do we, and there's no way you can really protect, protect them. You know, it's, it's part of the DNA of this country. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting uh, with the events around Ferguson, that series of images that uh, young people were putting out there in terms of which photo, if I were gunned down, which photo would they post of me? Mm. And uh, that was fascinating, you know, to see people either in uniform if they were in the military or during graduation mm -hmm. or with the kids, and then having another image where because of, you know, um, stereotypes, people might assume that they're a gang member or some sort of criminal or a thug or whatever word they want to use. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was, considering how immersed you were in the film on just those topics, it must have been fascinating and also a little bit heartbreaking to, to, to see that. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's constant, you know, um, both feeling, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, Trayvon Martin, you know, two years 
years ago, you know, or the less publicized cases of, you know, uh, uh, African-American men being murdered by the police or beat up by the police and or murdered. And then also African-American, you know, young men shooting one another. You know, it's heartbreaking. You know, the the whole issue of policing, you know, I mean, I when I travel extensively, you know, all over the world, you know, and when I come back home, I, f- I feel the intensity of the policing here um, as, a, as, as someone who is, a, you, know, you know, my physical manifestation in this plane is that of an African-American male, you know. And so yeah, I do feel it, you know, and it's, the, you know, that's, that's that risk that um, Sundance Documentary Fund was talking about, you know, me putting out there. And, you know, of course, it wasn't front and center, you know, we didn't have like, you know, people getting to that, that tipping point in terms of Ferguson, you know, that, that happened five months after the film, you know, came out at Sundance five or six months. It happened within the last what, month or so. So it's maybe eight months, you know, right. It happened ironically, you know, right as the film hit, hit the theaters, the whole idea of visual literacy all of a sudden became very, very topical. People are flocking to the theaters now to see the film because of that, you know, to get, have some sense of history and, you know, People actually have come up to me and said, you know, oh, thank you so much for making this film. We, we needed the film. We needed the film to actually crystallize the stuff, you know, to have it right there and to go all the way back. You know, and I knew it was a service. I knew I had to make this film. And, you know, it's, there was no, no question that it just had to be done. You know, I mean, tremendous sacrifice, you know, on the part of me and everyone who was uh, part of the filmmaking team. You know, we said this has to be done. Um, one of my producers, Ann Bennett, who is in charge of all the research and, you know, running the office, she would constantly tell the interns and the younger filmmaking team members that this film, you know, what we were doing was doing something on the level of order of, um, you know, Eyes in the Prize, you know, that came out in the 80s, you know, and during, you know, really talking about and giving a certain kind of context of the civil rights movement, you know, 20 some odd years later, that this had that same kind of, uh, import, you know, and um, you know, I knew I knew what I was we were doing it had value, and that you know it was a tremendous service. And little did I know that you know that I would meet history, you know, be meeting history with the, the film would be meeting history, you know, uh, upon its you know its 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 birth and launch, you know. And um, in fact, you know, several people um, in the audience, um, including Kevin Powell, you know, and Michaela Angela Davis, were saying, "Well, we got to take this film to Ferguson and show it outside." And so we're looking, you know, for support to do that, uh, several photo- you know, a bunch of black photographers went down to Ferguson and you know was shooting there. And you know, and one Terrence Jennings said to me that you, one woman came up to him and said, "You know, we need more of you people here. You know, we don't get to see you." And he said, "What do you mean?" He said, "You know, young 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 men who are doing you know positive things, who are shaping their own lives. You know, you know who you know who are creative." And you know, this is so he came and told me this you know, during the film film forum um, run. You know, the film is actually still running at the film forum. You know, black photographers historically have been on those front lines, you know, taking pictures, but also more than just taking the pictures, you know, representing themselves as well. Black photographers were some of the first people on the scene after Katrina. You know, there was uh, the Kamungi uh, Collective did, you know, made this amazing show, uh, you know, post-Katrina. It's something that is very important and very present. Well, my, my last question that I ask each guest is that I uh, ask them to recommend one photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired 
or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? You, I can't do that. You kidding? <laughs> you get beat up. <laughs> I have 26 photographers <laughs> in my film. Well, I did, did mention Anthony Barboza already. You know, Hugh Bell was an amazing photographer. His work was in the, um, the uh, he passed recently, right? At, uh, you know, a few years after we interviewed him. It was in the, he was one of the few, one if not one of two African-American photographers in the Family of Man show you know, um, in the night. 19, in 1950, what, four or five, and that got photography to really be considered as an as a, as a art form. Um, and we recently, I think it was last night, actually, we did, a, we had Hugh Bell's daughter and some uh, people who wrote about him and his, the archivist there to talk about his legacy and his, his work. Delphine Fawudu Buford is uh, African-American, an African artist, half African-American, half African. There's a lot of amazing work around hip-hop, and particularly hip-hop in on the continent of Africa. Some uh, really amazing work. Um, she was there um, earlier this week on a panel with Deborah Willis, uh, one of the producers on the film, as well as with Corrine Simpson, another photographer who um, uh, was an amazing photographer who actually did images of hip-hop during the you know, birth of hip-hop in the 80s. Lola Flash is, is a photographer who is does a lot of work around uh, transgendered folks and uh, in a, on a diasporic landscape. There's a photographer, Jonathan Eubanks, who is based in California in um, in the Bay Area, who's taken amazing images, landscapes, but also he did some seminal images of the Black Panthers in the 70s, and he showed and talked about some of those. Lewis Watts. Who I, who I believe has worked somehow with uh, Jonathan Eubanks. He's done a, a, some great work, uh, post-Katrina work. And there's a lot of uh, diasporic work as well. Frank Stewart was with Kamongi, and he's an amazing photographer. Uh, Akra Shep has done these amazing uh, pieces around the country, um, did a lot of work around the um, let's see, movement call that, that, that just happened, the... Um, where people sat in during the, it's based on the name of the movement, but he's just done a lot of uh, great work. Um, that's, that's a lot right there, bro. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's going to be a very long show notes tried, for this I tried, one. I tried to cover the landscape. <laughs> but listen, people can go to our website and see all the photographers in, in the film. Um, and the website is www.oneworldonefamily, the number one world, number one family, dot M-E. And you can see all the photographers in our film. Also, you know, we, we did this transmedia project uh, alongside the film in which we created what's called the Digital Diaspora Family Reunion Roadshow. And we've been traveling around the country with the roadshow for the last six years, encouraging people to bring in their family photographs and tell a story in front of a live audience and basically turn, you know, audience in from turn strangers into family by having this large communal sharing of family photographs. Uh, we blow it up blow the images up to the cinema scale and they stand in front of the image and tell a story and there's music and it's this really amazing transmedia kind of um, experience and we're actually doing that in Chicago in two weeks um, and um, and then we're doing that also in, in St. Louis when we go to St. Louis to show the film and also New Orleans and so that, that the, the, the roadshow, Digital Diaspora Roadshow is traveling with the film. That's awesome. Well, so, um, so you could you could actually upload some of your photographs uh, through on our Twitter feed, um, if you like, and become part of this new family album. And the Twitter, uh, you just tag it number one world one family, 
And uh, you can see it on our website. Again, it's www.oneworldonefamily.me, and you can see all the photographers. And I would just encourage people to, you know, uh, you know, support the local African American, Latino, people of color, women photographers in your community. Uh, when I, you know, during the most of the make, most of the years of making this film. People, I would tell people I'm making this film about black photographers, and everyone said Gordon Parks, you know. But then they struggled to say a photographer name, call out the name of an African American photographer beyond Gordon Parks, you know. And so often, as people of color, that happens to us, you know. You know, I, you know, I'm a black filmmaker. Oh, Spike Lee. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I mean, now it's actually much, you know, diverse and wider. But you, you still get that kind of kind of exceptionalism within you know the mainstream so i feel like with this film it's so important to use it as a um as a kind of call to uh to you know support you know not only contemporary african-american photographers but the archives of black photographers that the, the hundreds of archives of black photographers around the country well thank you brother i really enjoyed having a chance to talk with you and and best of luck on the film thank you so much Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.